We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn there. We're going to jump right in. Is that okay with everybody? We're going to just uh, see what God has for us today. I'm taking my text from the final words, the closing words of the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, which leads into that chapter um, that is known as the love chapter. But you cannot really understand why he wrote that part of the letter without looking closely at the closing words of chapter 12. I'm going to read it in two or three different, uh, well, two translations, one's a, a paraphrase. You probably know it better this way. Now, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Who recognizes that translation? It's King James. King James, that's the only translation we used to read. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. NIV reads like this. Probably a, a lot of you have that. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. And here's uh, some people's favorite rendering of it in the message. And yet some of you keep competing for so-called important parts. But now I want to lay out a far better way for you. So it kind of leads into what is next. A more excellent way. That's the title of this morning's message. And many point to the script that follows this as what that means. The more excellent way is the way of love. But we, let's look at a couple words here, and then we're going to um, tackle this passage in a little bit more detail. More excellent is translated from one word. It uses two words to translate it. Huperbole. Can you say that? Huperbole. If it sounds like something else, hyperbole comes from the same word. It is the same word. It, it finds its root in that more excellent way. Here's the interesting thing about that word. Huper means beyond or above, and bole means to throw. So that's why hyperbole is an exaggeration, something that's greater, that expresses something in a greater way. So what does he mean when he says, I'm going to show you something that is thrown beyond you? We don't say it that way. We don't translate it that way. Beyond what you currently are. I'm going to show you something greater than what you're experiencing. And what you're finding out. And then we get to this word love early in chapter 13, don't we? Early and often. The more excellent way, and someone says, well, here's the explanation of some gifts in chapter 12, the nine different gifts of the Spirit. And then chapter 14 is more focused on uh, speaking in tongues and prophetic uh, utterances. But they said, this is the way they're supposed to operate. They're supposed to operate in the dimension of the love of God, the great love of God. 
Now, just stay with me for a moment. We're going to come back to this. Let me track some things with you historically. Most religions, and I think uh, Brother Sister Davis will say this about Hindu because Hinduism has many, many, many gods. But very few religions outside of Christianity looks to their God or gods in a way outside of being strict, exact, angry, unknowable, distant, except Christianity believes in a God of love. Am I right on that, Brother Davis? That Hindus don't look, they don't process God loves you. They, 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 they can't process that idea. The gods that they have are ready for their appeasement, to sacrifice, to do anything to keep them from mashing them down for punishing them for things. And yet early in God's dealings with Israel, I'm going to read something from Deuteronomy chapter 7 if you want to follow that with me. God expresses early on to the nation of Israel that his relationship with them, obedience and faith was part of it, but his relationship with them was based on his love for them. Now, we might not see that too often, but if you look in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it says, the Lord says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For in reality, you were the fewest of all peoples. If you were going to pick out a group of people to say, we're going to change the world with that group, just looking at them, you would have never chosen this, this group of people. In verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is faithful. He is God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Early in the previous verse, in the previous chapter in verse 5, God calls the people to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. And he talks about putting them on your doorposts and talking about them when you get up, when you lay down, tell your children, teach your children. But it was about God speaking to people out of love. God spoke to the people of Israel and declared that he brought them out because of his affection on them. Now, now stop right here and think about where they're at right now. They went from a, a family of about 60 to 70 people when they moved to Egypt because of the famine. And Joseph had come up through the ranks miraculously into a place of leadership ordained of God to be in that place of leadership to rescue not only them, but a lot of people who, were, who would die from the famine. God gave him wisdom. And it was good at the start because the Pharaoh and, and Joseph were very close. They, they had this wonderful relationship. But as that generation of leaders died off, this sentiment changed toward them. And before you know it, this entire group of people were reduced to slavery. They were reduced to being oppressed and beaten, ordered 
free labor. They, they were a second-rate people in the land of Egypt. And this was their identity. This is who they were. They were slaves. And they stayed in the slavery until God brought them out miraculously with those ten plagues and delivered them and made them a free people. But if you watch what happens as they make their journey toward the promised land, it takes a long time for them to get slavery out of their DNA, doesn't it? They're always afraid. They're always thinking. And they're even saying at times, of course, Moses couldn't believe it. They were even saying at times, I just wish we were back in Egypt. They had cucumbers. <laughs> we ate well. We're tired of eating this manna. This is getting old. This is, we want variety. And I thought, you want variety while you're being whipped? But this was their mentality of being slaves. God pushes them and leads them into the promised land under Joshua. They establish an entity, a national entity. They have their land. They're growing. They're growing in, in population but they have this cycle of disobedience, repentance, disobedience, repentance. And, but finally they have their kingdom. And David is the legitimate king. He's the one out of the tribe of Judah. And Solomon, his son, follows him. And at that point, the kingdom is the largest it will ever get up until even today. They press toward the north up into Lebanon. He has cavalry outstations. They were a mighty nation. They repelled all of the people that tried to attack him under Solomon. But all of a sudden, the kingdom splits. Ten tribes rebel and turn into the northern kingdom, and Judah and Benjamin are left to form the nation of Judah. And we know what happens, don't we? The northern kingdom is completely demolished by the power of Assyria. Assyria rises up, which is, you know... Be, kind of like a conglomeration of, of tribes and, and governments. And then later on, Judah and Benjamin are destroyed by the assault of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. From that time on, Israel did not exist as a nation until 1948. So follow me just for a little bit this morning. They were reduced to a few people going back and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple and having somewhat of an identity, but never really the national power that they once were. And in came following, and, and by the way, isn't it ironic that it was an Iranian monarch that commissioned them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? How about that for irony? Cyrus and the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire gave them permission, even helped supply the rebuilding of the city and rebuilding of the temple. Gave them permission, gave them access to travel without any kind of impediments. And after that, here comes one of the most famous generals of all time, Alexander the Great. He is wiping things out as he comes. Everybody that resists him, his Greek army just destroys. And he would have destroyed Jerusalem, except the people that lived in Jerusalem decided, um, I don't think we're going to fight this fight. They opened the gates, he came in, and did not destroy Jerusalem. So everything's pretty good. But here comes Rome. 
and Rome presses in and over, and it's in this place that Jesus steps in to the society of Roman occupation. Now, the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. In other words, at the exact historical moment, God ordained the arrival of his son, the Messiah. At this point, not before, not after, it was at this point, and it was at this point that that Messiah, Jesus, would declare this, that God so loved Israel that he gave his only begotten son. Is that what he said? No. That God so loved the world, the entirety of humanity, God reached out to the entire world and sent his son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. But think of this. You know, Rome, the language of Rome was Latin, right? Well, how many people speak Latin anymore? Other than lawyers and attorneys and judicial branches, that's the only place Latin shows up now hardly anymore. But when Jesus was on the scene and, and Rome was in charge, still the Hellenistic, they call it the Hellenistic influence, the Greek influence was continuing in the arts and in the language and literature. And, and when God ordains for these people to start writing this book that we have called the New Testament, guess what language they write it in? The Greek language. Not Latin. You know, the people who really promoted Latin decided to translate the Bible into Latin. They called it the Latin Vulgate. Anybody got a copy of that? It's only used primarily maybe in Roman Catholic uh, sayings and repetitions because of the influence of, of the Roman language, but it's hardly used at all. But the Greek language was so prominent that it was, I don't think this was an accident. I don't think it just was happen chance that Greek was the literary language of the day that these men who spoke Arabic, who spoke, uh, not Arabic, Aramaic, and spoke Hebrew, also knew other dialects, but when they went to write these out, they wrote it in Greek. And this is what's translated in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I show you the more, the huperbole, excellent way. And this is what follows that. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Another reads it, like, writes it like this or translates it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love. Wonderful word, isn't it? L-O-V-E. I saw a little Valentine commercial. It was a candy commercial. And at the end of it, you give this candy to you, the, the woman or a girlfriend of your choice to hear those three words. And I said, I love you? And it says, no. It didn't say no to me. I was just... It said, I have Reese's. <laughs> you know. Love. L-O-V-E. 
You had to just be there. I, I was enjoying the moment anyway. Verse 2 says this, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that move mountains, how many think that's pretty good stuff right there? But do not have love, I am nothing. He's making a point here. He's stressing that it doesn't matter what you do if it's not motivated by this love, it's all for naught. It absolutely is zero. But it's not just love, it's this love. Because in the Greek language, there were four words, four prominent words for love. And this one is agape, a unique word. Now I'm going to show you these four words that they had for love. Any of the biblical writers could choose any of these words because they all were translated love in literature. But here's the first two. Phileo. It's a, a companionable love. It's, it's what is known in family love, a love between father and mother and children and one another. It's, in fact, uh, this word is part of the word Philadelphia. Adelphos is the Greek word for brother. Phileo is the word for love. And so they call Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. That's the translation of Philadelphia is, is brotherly love. So it's just kind of like companionable love that we have for one another. It's, it's, it's a great word for love. But when you look at agape, it is something that's called out of one's heart by the preciousness of someone else, something else other than yourself. It is a love of esteem, of evaluation. This is the word Jesus used in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And when you look at the spelling, some, some of the... Uh, University students probably know the alphabet enough to spell out agape. Somebody want to spell it out? Alpha, gamma, and you ought to know the next one. Alpha, pi. No. It's the lowercase of the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega. It's the lowercase. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? What Jesus said, remember, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega. He's telling you something here. <laughs> he said, I encompass everything that could be expressed with any language. I transcend anything that anybody could come up with. He said, I, I am Alpha and Omega, Omega, the beginning and the end. Isn't it interesting that the word, the verb, this is the verb, Agapao is the way he pronounced it, but this is the verb meaning to love this way. Agape is the noun. This is the love that's in 1 Corinthians. And the word begins with the very first letter in the Greek alphabet and ends with the last letter. So I think maybe there's something to this, don't you? But this is a love. Now I'm going to show you the next two words for love, and neither one of these words are found in the New Testament. Storge is a word that you would say, you know, I really love banana pudding. Now, we use the same word that 
is on Valentine cards. I love you like banana pudding. <laughs> now, that, that might be a pretty deep love right there. But this is storge. This is something that is used. It's not a bad word for love. It just means that it's, it's more on a, on a lower plane of appreciation and valuation. Now, eros, erao, is, of course, where they get the word erotic from. And it's very prominent in Greek literature because of the, the, the darkness and the sexual problems that they were having. And, and these were propping up in the church in Corinth, and Paul writes about it. So he's, trying to, he's trying to redirect these people away from eros. Eros, uh, eros is used today. Um, when people, some, when some guys tell a girl, I love you, they really are using that word. I lust you. Now, that probably wouldn't go over too good if the lady heard, what, what'd you say? But we're talking about a love that's defined by personal interest and personal pleasure at someone else's expense. Now, let's go to the next slide because it's going to express, this is, we're not going to really deal with those two, but this is the word we're going to deal with just for a moment, is this word agape. Now, here's the more extended explanation of this word. This word is hardly ever found in Greek literature outside of the Bible, which tells you this. This word is pretty much created, not created, it was in existence, but it just wasn't used that much, and it's almost solely used in the New Testament to talk about God's kind of love. That's why when Paul wrote that if you have all of these powers to move mountains and you don't have phileo, it's often a, he didn't say that. He says if it's not motivated out of this kind of love, and this kind of love does not come from human hearts. This kind of love comes only from God changing a person's heart. There's people that love their children would jump in front of a train for their children. They might not know God or love God or serve God or, or be born again, but there's this deep affection to protect their own, and it's good. It's, it's a pure, authentic love. But this is a different kind of love. This is the love that motivated a holy and righteous God to send his only begotten son who was perfect and pure and sinless to take on our sins and to die for us. That's his love, and this is the beauty of it. He's telling us that love can be in you, and it can be in me. But there's some things we need to really check and make sure we're not having things going on in us that's keeping this love from operating. It delights in giving. This love keeps on loving, even when the loved one is unresponsive. Notice God didn't say, Jesus didn't say, for God so loved the people that would turn to him, he gave his only begotten son for them. A blanket statement that all humanity, even those who curse him, who defy him, who reject him, he died for them. He died for all of humanity. For those who are unlovable, this is where this is where we find out what kind of love we have, right? When someone offends us and hurts our feelings, we kind of like, okay, was this like phileo love or is this agape love? Let's go to the next slide because it explains it even more. It desires only the good 
of the one loved. How about that? It is consuming passion for the well-being of others. And it's, like it says, it's hardly ever used outside of biblical literature. But yet here it is, it's chosen to be planted into this chapter about love that tells us in the closing part of chapter 13, now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So this is the love that defines God's posture toward us, his disposition toward us. In our unlovable state, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more will God's goodness and his mercies be poured out upon us once we yield ourselves to him and surrender our lives to him? So what does it mean for us to love Jesus? Well, it means you put a bumper sticker on your car saying, honk if you love Jesus. Or I really... I found something to combat that sticker. Text it, and you'll meet him. You're texting while driving. But let me just... You you just take it off for the moment. We'll go to the other one here in just a moment. I know that's going to just keep distracting you, so... But here's, here's what we've reduced loving Jesus to, really... Blowing your horn, that really makes people appreciate you. Because they cannot read the bumper sticker on your back bumper when they're looking at your hood. And at the front of your car and you're honking the horn, waving. (laughs) That's not what they think you're doing. I love Jesus. And we just helped somebody else not love Jesus. But now we've reduced it to... uh, I may be talking to some people here this morning. Send, if, you're, if you're not ashamed of Jesus, send this to 10 people and prove that you're not ashamed of Jesus. Really? That, that proves you're not ashamed of Jesus? You see how we become victims to slogans and shallow thinking? and We, we have so many... We, we say, I love Jesus, and this is how I show I love Jesus. And I'm going to show you something in just a moment. I'll give you guys the heads up when to put it up here. But we are probably at one of the most divisive times that I can recall in our nation. This, is, this nation is so divided. The election and all the energy and and there's so much in hate speech and demonstrations and destruction and energies and tempers and statements and you just name it, it's going on, is it not? And yet we try to take that and press Jesus into it somehow and make Jesus endorse our side of it. Now, someone sent me this picture, and I've cropped it to take the identities. And I didn't think much about it, but 
I felt like I needed to show it to you this morning. You've probably already seen it. It was in the Tuscaloosa News. You can put it up. Do you see that? And just think about it when you look at it. We're going to leave it up for a little bit. Is this loving Jesus? Is this loving Jesus? I'm not asking for a response. I just want you to think about it. Is this what defines loving Jesus? And if it is, we're in serious trouble. Because I have some questions. If you believe and you kind of like agree with that, those signs, you know, we're not going to vote on them or anything. But if you believe this is loving Jesus, I'd like to ask the person holding the one on the right, when is the last time you reached out to a Muslim? When is the last time you witnessed to a Muslim? When is the last time you talked to them about Isa? That's what they refer to Jesus. When is the last time you thought about all of them that gather down near Bryant-Denny Stadium every Friday for their service at the mosque and really say, Lord, would you please reveal yourself to them? You see how easy it is for us to gravitate to a slogan and not back it up. Or when's the last time when we talk about the, the, the racial tension in our country? And, you know, somewhere in the immigration stuff, and, and I'm trying to be real careful not to weigh too far in this, but I think it applies to 1 Corinthians 13. This is why we're spending a little time on it. If we are a representation of the love of Jesus with people who may or may not be in this country legally, and we kind of reference that by the people crossing over from Mexico into our country. And by the way, there's a significant group of people from Guatemala that's in the city. And so we kind of categorize everybody. But they speak, speak Spanish. And here's the question. If you're so concerned about people who are coming into the country, when is the last time you tried to reach out to someone of that ethnicity with the love of Jesus. Or try to learn enough Spanish to say, Dios le bendiga. Or, hey, Jesus te llama. Now, somebody in this room knows what Jesus te llama means, right? What does it mean? Jesus loves you. You see how signs betray us? Now, it very well could be that the people who are holding those signs are doing those very things. And that I don't know. I'm asking questions. If we really have this kind of love for people that are here that shouldn't be here, and, and by the way, get mad at me if you want to, it's okay. My wife still loves me, I think. <laughs> the Great Commission does not tell us to preach the gospel to everyone that's here legally. It doesn't matter. It matters maybe governmentally and, 
and maybe in other things, but not with the Great Commission. There is no exception to the Great Commission. There's no, but if they're this, or if they're that, or if they're not from a different culture, you're just afraid you're going to offend them. I even had one of our young people tell me today that she was, she was thinking seriously and would love to go to the state of Utah to do missions work. Guess with what group? Mormons. Because she had studied Mormonism in, in her class at school that she was attending. Isn't that neat when she finds out what someone really believes and they have a desire to step out of their safety zone and go and try to reach out to someone who does not believe that salvation comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or when's the last time we even gave a thought about a Jehovah Witness in front of us, a praying for them. Instead of just saying, ah, I don't want to get into an argument. I don't like arguments. And I'm just going to slam the door shut. Is that the love of Jesus? Does this even imply? Or am I way out in left field? Am I way off base here? saying, does Jesus care about these people? Absolutely. He cares enough that he hung on the cross for them, regardless of who they are, what they've done. Isn't that what we share the gospel with people who we consider safe to share it with? Oh, I'm, you know, I've had Muslim guys get mad at me. But that's okay. They're still my friends, in my estimation. <laughs> and I think maybe I'm their friends. I just hadn't seen them lately. But I keep looking for them. I can't wait to see them again. I want to, I want to greet them because I, I care about their soul. And I care about, you know, these, these uh, where Dub works in the Middle East there in Afghanistan, these Muslim men we pray for every Sunday night. I probably can only pronounce a couple of their names right, but I give it a shot. <laughs> and it's a southern sound of Arabic coming out of me. But when I look at their face, when I look at their faces, I know this. I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus loves them. And he died on the cross for them. And I know what my natural tendencies are are when someone, something upsets me and we turn to the flesh instead of the spirit. And I don't want that. I want to be able to pray for those who slam me when I'm trying to talk to them because I need to look past that and look at the value of who they are and look at them not through phileo but through agape. I found myself, and, and you guys can come to the platform, and we're going to have a really nice chili dinner and fellowship together and hold hands and sing and all be happy here in a little bit. But I found myself this week, over the last couple of weeks, 
praying for two prominent names. And if I said their names, you would recognize that there was two ladies from the um, Women's March. And I found myself praying for them and crying out to God to save them. To reveal himself to them because I found a passage in, in the Apostle Peter's writing that said this, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And the more I thought about that, the less I had bad feelings toward them and the more I had sympathy for them because they're broken. And wouldn't it be neat to see the Lord save them? Just think about it. Think about that. If, if Christians just said, today we're going to pray for so-and-so, collectively, and ask for God to invade their sleep and invade their dreams and show himself great to them because we are his voice on this earth and we're penetrating a dark place in our society and crying out to God to reveal himself to broken people. I just believe that God acts on those prayers and that somewhere there's a holy disturbance. My dad said my mom got radically saved and when she got baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was, it was done. He, was, he, he, was, he would say he was a Christian, but he wasn't a Christian. But she had his car keys when he was working midnight shift down at a little prayer meeting with these Spirit-filled women, they were anointed his car keys with oil. She would take his socks, and they'd pray over his socks. I don't know if they prayed over his underwear or not. I wouldn't have put past my mother. But she was, she, was, she was after him. She was after him. In her mind, he wasn't going to be able to do anything but get saved. And the day he decided to go to church with her, the Holy Spirit got so hard on him. I wasn't old enough to remember. My brother tells me, says he got out of his seat about halfway down, the, down in the congregation, a little small church in Chillsburg, to come to the altar and fell flat on his face, all 240 pounds of him, sobbing like a baby. Didn't even make it down here. And I can tell you, and he will tell you, the last weeks of his life were the most miserable weeks that he's ever lived. He was just miserable. And it was that little lady that decided she wasn't going to fight him with carnal weapons. She was going to dig out, dig out the big weapons <laughs> of prayer, fasting, and anointing everything he had with oil. He probably wondered, why has he's got oil all over? <laughs> you know, she, I just want a little dose of that. I want to know the heart of God enough to say, Lord, get me past any of my inhibitions, that it is my responsibility to witness for you. It is my calling to share the gospel with whoever you put in front of me, no matter who they are and their disposition. Is that what you want? Stand with me.